Hey, yeah, and welcome to the Four Color Nerds comic podcast episode 63. I am Carissa, and I'm joined by another nerd, Ryan. Hello. Together, this duo takes on this week's comics, and each week we read a variety of comics. We gather here to discuss them. This is a review show, so there will be spoilers. If you don't want to hear spoilers, take a break now, go read your week's books, and then come on back. You hit the pause button right there. Each week, one of us picks our favorite book of the week, and that's our pick of the week. This week, I am that nerd. And this week, the pick goes to Super Sons, number one. It's a DC comic. I'll pause for your shock. <laughs> our companion song is Bad Influence by Pink, because, well, let's face it, Damien is just a bad influence. <laughs> <laughs> that boy is just all messed up, and I love him for it. He's the yin to the yang. Okay, so let's take a listen. Uh-oh, I'm always on a mission from the get-go. So what if it's only one o'clock in the afternoon? It's never too soon to send out all the invitations to the last night. Super Sons, number one, DC Comics, When I Grow Up, part one, written by Peter J. Tomasi, pencils and inks by Jorge Jimenez, and colors by Alejandro Sanchez. We had issues before where the Super Sons were going through like those training missions with the bat, Goliath, and everything like that. And I remember thinking it was really cute. I liked their dynamic, and it was really fun. So when this came out, I was pleasantly surprised because I just love how messed up Damien is. But let's get into it. So they do have a really good dynamic. The beginning is a little confusing to me. I'm assuming they're going back to this later, where it's like some weird television show. Yeah, at first I wasn't sure if it was a television show or if the kid has like psychic powers. I couldn't really tell, but it is definitely a television set. But it does feel like they have super powers because they're doing whatever the person says. So there's two panels of that, and I don't know what's going on with that because it has nothing to do with the rest of the panels in this. I presume they're coming back to that. So that being said, some person telling other people what to do and then group hug like it looks like on a family set so the next part is which i love it's them running from something and just you know damien i gave you all the pertinent information of of the situation john is like what are you talking about there's too many like they're doing some sort of training they're running from robo versions of themselves which is pretty funny like through the jungle and they still having the same argument i'm older i'm taller you know why is your name first you don't realize it quite at first but damien is riding piggyback with superboy and later on in the issue they bring that up so it's kind of an interesting little loop back thanks for taking that from me i was gonna mention that <laughs> you're welcome because <laughs> I- yes johnny's walking through the snow to school or to the bus to get to school and there's a new bus driver and he's like an old crankety man and he's like where's my regular <laughs> driver and he's like he's out sick and he's on the bus and there's like a boy being teased and he steps into the bullies who are spitballs and he's like stop you know leave him alone and the kids are like, who do you think you are superman and they totally pelt him with spitballs i like it's kind of like a reference to those scenes with the bullets bouncing off of Superman. That's what I thought too. Bus driver's like, you sit down there, cut out that nonsense. He's like, yes, sir. And they sit down. As they're walking the bus, they're heading up to school. John notices that the snow is a good consistency for a snowball fight. He's like, oh, let's pick sides. As him and his friends were planning that, the bullies come up behind them already like locked and loaded with massive snowballs ready. So then they start having a snowball fight. That's a good way to get out your aggressions. The bullies decide to take it up a notch and start putting rocks in and they hit the friend that they were bullying on the bus and he 
starts bleeding. And the girl who got hit, she's like, oh, my coat padded. And then they're like, oh, we're going to get bigger rock. I love the panel where he starts lowering his glasses and his eyes start glowing red. Like he's thinking for a moment that he's going to use his laser vision. And then he puts them back on with like a sigh, like he thinks better of it. And so instead he starts to think more strategic, get them closer, we'll charge them. And then all of a sudden, kaboosh, like a huge ass snowball falls on them. And he looks up and it's the school bus driver. And he's like, wait a second. So he tells all his friends to go to like a safer place and he runs to an alleyway to confront who he knows what it is and it's uh it's damien <laughs> in disguise <laughs> in disguise and i like how he's on weird stilt boots and he's pulling up his legs you can see how it made him taller i do really like that panel when they have him pull up the legs so you can see how he's taller that he's rigged yeah. it up that's a really good panel nice details and he's like do you even go to school he's like i'm homeschooled and like they have a whole back and forth you know like, remember him he pulls out like another mask of someone else he's like pretended to be it was like it's a substitute teacher i think you're finding out here that damien wayne is a scooby-doo villain basically <laughs> he's got all yeah. these masks that he can pretend to be people with damien's just not right in the head he's like oh i would have <laughs> been a doctor in geology at seven years old but my mom murdered him and dumped him in the ocean that's just not normal conversation kid what are you doing damien's not a normal kid he's messed up and then they're like i don't think i want to get in a car with you it's not safe he's like i got you here just fine right it's like well how long have you been driving he's like eight years old and he's like not nah, five <laughs> but then when he puts the disguise back on and John starts to get on the bus. He's like, go find your seat, kid. And he's like, gives him like the dirtiest look. He's like, <laughs> yeah. They have really good interactions with each other. Their chemistry is really good. Which is what I actually like about it, which actually is what wins me over. And then for our Alfred time, so back in Gotham City, Wayne Manor, Damien's like training, throwing batarangs at dummies. Daddy's walking by. He's leaving and talking to Alfred. As he leaves, he's like, finally, time to carve up. And he like leaps over him. He's like, thanks for the pivot point, Pennyworth. He's like, you are not welcome, Master Damien. Yeah, he uses Alfred's head as his leverage for his hand flip thing. So he thinks he's going to go off with his dad. He's just getting on his Robin gear. And he's like, uh, yeah, no. <laughs> Batman's not having it. Bat dad has a moment. He's like, well, give me your word about your studies. He's like, well, then keep it. <laughs> he takes off. Like, you're being unreasonable, father. He wants to go out and cry and fight and he's not having it. He's like, nope, I got stuff to do. In the, like, opposite view, we go to the Kent home and it's the family moment. They're playing, I don't know, cards or something. I don't know what, yeah. some sort of card game. Family bonding and it's like all picturesque, you know, like you're looking at a Rockwell painting. That's exactly what I thought, a Rockwell painting. And you always all called him Jono and they're teasing, you know, because Lois is playing them. And then they're saying how proud they are that he tried to stand up to the bullies, even though it wasn't fully effective. But the fact that he attempted will inspire other people to do it in the future. And that's what really counts. And Lois is being a card shark and Batman, not sorry, not Batman, Superman, that guy, you know, the one. He gets a call saying he has Justice League information business. So he has to go. And I do like the panel where you know he like swoops and kisses Lois like in a little dip kind of thing and I do like that panel a lot it seems like if he was having a family that's what he would do it's very Superman to me that panel is also really well composed because you've got Lois on one side and his son on the other and then him flying out as Superman is kind of the dividing line between them it's just mm-hmm. it's it's very well done and so then Lois takes as a hint to put him off to bed so as he's in bed he's going to sleep and all of a sudden there's like a creepy voice asking him in the dark I hope you remember to floss Johnny boy and he flips around gets up on his bed and his eyes are all glowing I like how that panel looks with his weird frog jammies I don't want to steal your thunder but I really like the next part what they're talking to each other well there's kind of one up each other they're like well I would have dodged and put a kick in your solar plexus oh yeah well I would have kicked and knocked with the left hook you know there's like back and forth seems like really realistic dialogue between kids how they always try and one up each other like well I would have done this yeah well I would have done this instead so I thought that was really good writing here that they don't sound 
sound like little miniature adults. I agree. Very realistic. And well, it felt like sometimes when we're playing joke fighting and then the mom jumps in and everything's fine. He's like, oh, I'm just on my laptop with my boxer frog jammies. She's like, well, it's bedtime. He's like, night, mom. He, he, he looks kind of face. And then, like Damien's just hanging outside the window upside down. Damien is a creepy little, little guy. That is true. I always picture him when he does the scary voice, like trying to imitate Batman's voice. So I always mm-hmm. hear like a little miniature, like prepubescent Christian Bale trying to give his scary voice. But it ends up sounding like kind of like Cookie Monster in the process. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, well, you know, since you're home away from home is Metropolis, I decided to do some investigation. So basically he lures and convinces Johnny to sneak out because that's the meaning of being Superboy. They forget about bedtime and they have to be actually super. <laughs> he's just being a bad influence. Come be a bad boy with So they're jumping through Metropolis and, you know, that's where the, I can't believe you can't fly, the thing we mentioned before. They also, when they're swinging through Metropolis and jumping, they have a total homage to the Dark Knight where there's the classic lightning strike with the silhouettes of Batman going across the sky, but in this case, it's Robin and Superboy. Mm-hmm. It's a really cool panel. They do a lot of really good artwork in here. That was one of the reasons why it's my pick of the week is I really enjoyed the artwork. I thought it was really good. And it's really funny. So when he's at school, his Johnny's jeans had like patches on the knees and like were reinforced. But when in his Superboy costume, they're all ripped up and torn. I thought that was a neat little flip touch. It's like the well-dressed boy. But when he is in his alternate uh, disguise, he's tattered. <laughs> I don't know why he thinks that's a... Hey, glasses work for his dad. <laughs> Disguises aren't really the Kent thing. So then after that panel you mentioned, that's where the piggyback line happens again. And so basically, Damien is taking him to go and check out... LexCore? The LexCore building is just glass. And they're kind of like just stuck to it, or at least John is, and then Damien has his hook. And then up behind comes Lex in his like Superman robo suit. And he's like, can I help you with something? And then that's where it ends. And they're like, oh. <laughs> and I like it. John's like, um, hi. And Damien's just like, I'm gonna get you. <laughs> like murder yeah. face. Damien's ready to fight. John feels bad about getting caught doing something wrong. Yeah. They're a really good dynamic with each other. I really enjoyed this. The artwork is really strong. I love the little details. I like how Damien was this horrible child. And John is pretty cute. And they have a realistic kind of banter between them, which I think really makes it kind of endearing and a good read. I'm normally not a big DC fan, but I really like good art and I really like good dialogue. And I just find Damien very interesting the way that they've been using him. I think Peter J. Tomasi is really good at writing kind of like a heartwarming Superman. And in here, he's able to take that same ability and he adds in Damien to kind of counterbalance it. And it's a really wonderful mix. It's a really good comic. I gave it a four and a half pertinent informations. I gave it four and a half. Let's be super. So we're still in the DC universe, but we're with Batman this time, the regular Batman. Batman number 17 from DC Comics. I Am Bane, part two, written by Tom King, pencils by David Finch, inks by Danny Mika, colors by Jordi Belair. Bane is coming to Gotham to try and get the Psycho Pirate. Yeah. Because the Psycho Pirate is basically detoxing him, but Batman needs him to help save Gotham Girl. Correct. I got that. It's, I didn't know who some of the bad guy, the villains with Bane were, but I was like, am I supposed to know who that is? I, I don't know who, you know, those guys are either. <laughs> ka, ka. I got the car was supposed to be a clue, but I'm like, who the hell is that? Well, that's his bird that is like his falcon that he's doing. So 
it opens up with Bronze Tiger, who's in like some flea bag hotel going through detoxing. Like he's got the shakes and the sweats and it's like tossing mm-hmm. and turning at night. And there's someone like pounding on his door and you don't really see who it is. He opens up the door telling him, I'm here. Like you can stop knocking. And you hear that caw, which you mentioned before, which is mm-hmm. like your first clue. And then he gets shot in the stomach. I liked in Tom King books when people get shot or their explosions, they're really realistically done. Like that looks like a nasty gut wound when he gets shot. Then you have Superman is going to his Fortress of Solitude. I like this because Batman's already chilling inside the Fortress of Solitude, even though it was locked and like Superman <laughs> had to unlock it. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> Batman's like, you're here. Batman is worried that in the fight against Bane, a lot of his Robins are going to die again. And he doesn't want that to happen. So he's had them taken and put in like a cryogenic sleep in the Fortress of Solitude. He wants Superman to watch over them for the four days that it's going to take to cure Gotham Girl with the Psycho Pirate. So those aren't the ones that were hung before? That part is really confusing to me because in the last issue, they came down in the cave and there were like hung bodies that were there. Yeah. And that is those three. They haven't explained what happened. Okay. Did Gotham Girl see like a hallucination? So Soups agrees to look after them for four days and he goes to kind of turn around to tell Batman that he agreed and Batman's done his classic like disappearing trick, which I don't know why Batman never says goodbye. (laughs) So then it kind of cuts to Arkham Asylum and you have the doctor wheeling Hush through the hospital. So Hush is all bandaged up and like straight jacketed through and you get to see a bunch of the prisoners as they're going by saying that they're going to break out and kill everybody and, you know, being all menacing and evil. They have this cell that Mr. Miracle designed to, they say, both hold the Joker and stop Harley Quinn from breaking the Joker out. There's only one key to get in and out. But he just keeps in his pocket. The doctor starts talking about how he was the youngest recruit to the Royal Shakespeare Academy and he was going to redefine all these roles, but then he went to Gotham instead. And you're like, what the hell is he talking about? Yeah. Again, Scooby-Doo villain like rips off his fake mask and you realize it's Alfred. I was like, yay, Alfred! Alfred's kind of cool in this one, I have to say. You get more of his, I used to be part of MI6 badassness. I love that Tom King's giving some Alfred love. I feel like he's been a larger part of the story in this run than a lot of other ones before. I think Alfred in the Tom King ones kind of stands by as the witness to like Batman's kind of destruction. And mm-hmm. you get to see the cost that it has on Alfred. Yeah. So then they unwrap Hush and you realize it's not Hush, that it's actually Gotham Girl. And she's all bandaged up as Hush because nobody can really tell who's under the bandages. So the Psycho Pirate is kind of like chained up and has like a mask on. And he's saying that he can help them if they just let him go. He'll fix whatever's wrong with them. And Alfred puts a gun to his head and then he has the Psycho Pirate's mask on like this stick that he holds in front of his face with a gun to his head to try and convince Claire that she's not afraid, that she's brave. And then you get this, I think, this really great cutaway panel where Batman's talking about how Superman has his Fortress of Solitude and Batman has his and it's him but without the gargoyles on the clock tower. It's a really good drawing. Super muscles. Super muscles, Batman being all broody, you know, standing guard outside of Arkham Asylum. And then you cut over to this orphanage, the orphanage that uh, got burned down that Catwoman has talked about and there's this blonde lady standing there and then this guy comes up and starts talking to her about how they want to tear down the orphanage and build a memorial to it but they can't because there's all these cats around that no matter how many of them they get rid of there's always more of them like someone's there like taking care of them and he's like it's not that hard to get rid of cats she's like it's not and then he kind of winks at her and whistles and that's that bird which is where you get like the caw caw from Mm -hmm. earlier when he shot him appears and he shoots the lady the hawk is like chasing down cats right there's actually this really cool panel where he goes over to the blonde woman and takes off her wig and you realize that that's Selena Kyle that's Catwoman in disguise and while he's doing that the hawk is ripping into this cat and eating it while it's alive so it's a nice little image of you know the hunt 
hunter catching the cat in both panels. It's kind of the technique they have with the psycho pirate, the mask on a stick with the gun to the psycho pirate's head. And he's going to be doing these therapy sessions with Claire, trying to convince her that she's not afraid, which is what he did to her before to turn them both kind of insane. And now he's undoing what he did. It's really creepy. And you can tell kind of how frightening it is to give him that power to be able to control people's minds. Could use it to do pretty much anything. Like it's why Alfred has that gun to his head and it's not actually looking at him. Mm-hmm. You know, he's standing behind him. So if he starts telling Claire, kill the butler or something like that, he's going to put a bullet through his head. And the look on Alfred's face definitely tells me that he is prepared to do that. Yeah, he looks very tense. So then you get Psycho Pirate saying to her, you're very brave. You're very brave. Which goes back to in the I Am Gotham arc that you are very afraid. In previous issues, it's always been that Gordon is trying to quit smoking. It's kind of this running theme throughout it. And he's talking to Barbara on the phone, telling her that he was going to quit this week. And she's like, what are you talking about, Dad? I thought you already quit. And he's like, no, I mean, I already quit this week. He has a pipe that he's doing. And she's like, are you lighting a cigarette? And he's like, do you think I would be lighting a cigarette while I'm talking to you on the phone? And then he drops the like the pipe. He's like, oh, sorry, I dropped my uh, banana, <laughs> which is totally ridiculous. And that's where you again get that cough from the bird. And there are these two dudes there, the kind of skinny, rakish pirate guy who has the bird. And there's this huge burly guy with this like submachine gun strapped to him. Gordon like fights one guy, kicks his ass, and he's like, all right, who's next? Duke comes uh, dropping in the alleyway. It's like, heard you might need some help. And they all start fighting and brawling. And they're doing all right. Like they knock both those dudes out. And that's where the wall behind them, you just see this big panel of this hand coming through the wall. Like that's Bane's hand that's coming yeah. out. And then you get this really cool panel where Batman is sitting on his broody rooftop and that's where you hear that caw caw again being repeated like that's one thing Tom King does really well and issues is he'll repeat a thing over and over again he knows how to emphasize a point so Batman is like what is this there's this bird flying around and he goes to investigate and that's when you see Bane flicking open this flare and he's standing on another rooftop and he's got the four people that he's captured lined up execution style which you can kind of see Batman's point why he put the Robins in the cold storage for a while because Bane is going after everyone who's close to Batman. Bane knows fighting Batman head on is not really the way to do it. That you have to break the bat before you can defeat the bat. Mm -hmm. He's done it physically to Batman before and now I think he's going after all of his emotional ties and support. So you get these kind of cool panels of Batman and Bane mean mugging each other across rooftops as they're getting ready for the fight. I've been looking at this run by Tom King just because all the stuff with Catwoman and just Bane. That whole running like you're saying the caca like it just shows like they're just staring at each other. There's nothing else going on in their world than staring at each other with this bird making the sound. I think it really shows how everything's falling away and just that sound of that bird is just all they hear while they're intensely staring at the situation. It's like in the Western movies where like the gunfight happens. Like I would not be surprised if like a tumbleweed mm-hmm. go like rolling past these guys yeah. as they're staring at each other. It's intense. And then there's that panel that's just Bane with the close-up of the flare above his head with the cock off. Like, oh, that one's drawn really well. No, I just really like his storytelling and the intensity. Maybe because there is a more of an emotional play going on. I find that more interesting. Tom King balances really well. I mean, I've talked about the very realistic violence and brutality of this Batman. This Batman is a very brutal run, but he also knows the emotional impact and truth of Batman, why he is the way he is and what that means to him. So he can hit both notes really, really well. I will give this four and a half caw caw. 
I'll give it four and a half. Cats are easy to deal with. Oh, that poor little cat getting eaten by a falcon. That was I know. sad. <laughs> All right. Away from the violence. Yes. And welcome back to Sex Criminals. Number 16, Image Comics. Book four, The Saga Continues, written by Matt Faction and art by Chip Zdarsky. If you have not been reading along with Sex Criminals up until now, this is a great issue to pick up. It has a full, very in-depth recap at the beginning. It's probably the best recap I've ever seen in a comic book. Correct. It is detailed and yet funny, so it's not as boring to someone who has been following along because they definitely put their humor spin on it and make it worthwhile to go through. I cannot say that enough. If you haven't been reading it but are curious about it, not sure if you're going to go back from the beginning, this is a great one to pick up. It does really well because it tells you not only all the plot you need to know, like a really good summary of the plot, Mm -hmm. gives you a really good insight into the characters, lets you know the kind of clever meta commentary that the book uses on things. It also comments on like, how are you supposed to tell the time has stopped when comics are just still images? And they're like, well, because there's wavy lines. So you know, know, the time has stopped somehow. So then after the summary, we pick up with them, with John and Sue's and everyone, his doctor, all of them talking to the other people who can go into the quiet or come world that they found off of the sex cops files. And one of them is the hentai anime guy and the other one is I don't know who that one is but she but she has or he I'm not sure what I think it's a she I'm gonna say she I don't know if you remember the issue they had with the person who was asexual that's that person they are not having it they basically she tears apart John's reasoning and his plans and his ideas saying why you cannot go after Kegel faces and how how much it puts them all in danger and basically how stupid he is and tears apart any sort of plan or argument that they have he gets in a huff and a puff and he storms out which Suze gets very upset about that and she takes off after him I actually like her reasoning you left me there I had to apologize for you you're being an asshole I thought that was a really good series of panels with their conversation she's like mm-hmm. we're a team and you left me behind you don't leave a man behind if yeah. you want to storm out we leave together don't leave me there to apologize and make the awkward exit while you get to make the cool exit really realistic and true in the recap they go on to say how a lot of this book has to deal with communications and the difficulties in communications in relationship to see one played out where it was actually being really well put right after that I think is really important that's one thing this book does really well you like you would think a book that is as ridiculous as people who bone to be able to stop time is that this book actually has a lot of emotional truth in it is actually a very realistic book in the way that people interact with each other and their relationships it felt so true and so natural they're walking off and she's like all good couples have common goals together i saw it on like a blog so she wants to sit down and write this goals list of things they want to do and he's like you mean like what stuff <laughs> she's like oh john she's like serious read things podcast snapchat the look of her while she's waiting for his reaction how just like kind of like eager and like hopeful and maybe a little bit worried that he's not going to go for it mm-hmm. those are really good reaction panels favorite stuff this guy this fucking guy everyone knows every time i've ever reviewed sex criminals i love when they go that girl this guy like and i love how it just is a reoccurring phrase in the comic for how they feel about each other goes to this so and it's like just a black panel john in a red room with like this black cube but you can't see the lines and he's staring at it guessing it's a dream but it seems very strange but then he hears fuck i want some coffee john and like he hears the voice and he like kind of stirs and it's him in bed with Susie talking about coffee and dreams and he says how he didn't have any i'm not sure 
what's going on there? I think that's the room he went into in the sex cops vault. Mm. He is having a dream, but he doesn't want to talk about it. First of all, the Hamilton poster on their wall. Way to represent, guys. She's like, but I have my markers. <laughs> and she has everything set out. And he's like, fucking nerd. <laughs> that little like grin on her face. Such a cute interaction. Again, so real. She's adorable. Yeah. So the back and forth about the markers. So eventually she turns it into a strip poker. He gives her one idea that aren't butt stuff plans. They're like actual things. No, she put that down as one of their plans. She said, put down stuff we want to do. And that's stuff. And she's like, fair enough. You always reference how motion through panels reminds you of the family circus where the, the little live show. Their truck is the raunchy version of that. This is like the X-rated family circus. Their pathway to all the sex positions and where and when. Yep. And the little squiggly lines to show you how, how many times they stop time. So I thought you would like that. I was like, how many times has he ever mentioned this? And this is almost exactly, it actually has the path. This is clearly the family circus path they're using. This is where you get a lot of the sex and sex criminals happening. This issue. It's like a real couple, you know, eating naked on a couch, eating your cereal, reloading your energy, and then just talking and working things out. I like the panel where he's sitting at the desk writing out his goal or whatever, mm-hmm. and she's just kind of standing there, like sipping the coffee, like leaning in the doorway, watching him. Oh, you like that one? I like the one where she's wearing a costume and throws a dildo at him as he's running away. They don't come at the same time, right? So one of them stops time and they're like screwing with each other. Yeah. <laughs> they're in bed and they're spooning, and she talks about how she hates that. Spooning, it looks sweet, but it never lasts. Someone needs a drink or have to pee, or your arm falls asleep. But then she falls asleep, and I like how it shows the panel like from night to morning, and she wakes up, and he's still there. She's surprised that he stuck through it. Like She said something, and... He's smart. He didn't put his arm underneath her head. He put it on top so it doesn't fall asleep. He was listening. It ends on a very frustrating note for me. And then, wow, we have so many letter daddies in the back. It's not even funny. They're pretty good. One of the better parts of the issue. Definitely do not skip past the letters page. It's its own thing. This is a perfect jumping on point. I gave it four and a half. Susie throwing dildos at John. I gave it four that girls. All right. So we have Captain America, Steve Rogers, number 11, written by Nick Spencers, pencils Jesus Sayez, inks by Scott Hanna, colors by Rachel Rosenberg. So this one, again, with most of these Captain America panels, you get the past and the present together, tied together with some kind of thematic bond. And in this one, it's Steve because his skinny little self at the project getting an injection by a nurse and he's talking about how we all like to pretend that we're strong and independent but really when things go bad you need friends and that's where the doctor comes in and you think maybe he's talking about how he's going to become friends with the doctor and the doctor's you know trying to set him up on a date with the like hot nurse and that doesn't quite work because she has a boyfriend so mm-hmm. he has Steve come over to like listen to records with him and be bored by his old stories and then it kind of cuts to the funeral of Jack Flagg that everyone's at the guardians are there Groot's in there in the corner and yeah. Rocket's like in his little suit looking super raccoon sad. <laughs> I was really struck by that actually how sad he looks in that panel. He owns a suit? When he went to the funeral one, I don't know if you remember where the guy kept pretending to be dead. He had a suit then too. That's right. So like all the superheroes are there kind of in their normal clothing and you have this panel where Steve Rogers is talking to somebody and he's telling them like it's time to tell them the whole truth. He's not talking at the funeral though. It's two kind of present day scenes that are intercut with each other. So they're kind of like walking along and now that Steve is like the director of S.H.I.E.L.D., he's having conversations with people. Like, first he's talking with Rick. He has a job for Rick to do, and Rick doesn't want to disappoint him because he's Captain America. And then he goes and he talks to Peter Quill, to Star-Lord, to try and get him to go talk to Carol and convince her that this space shield is a really bad idea. And he's like, I thought you would like this. He's like, well, you know, Carol, once she gets an idea in her head, not going to back down. Diego Star-Lord. So he's using all the, you know, resources he has at his disposal. Then it kind of cuts back to Steve and the doctor 
doctor who in like the regular timeline is the one who actually performed the super soldier formula and gave him the injection and then gets killed by Hydra or Nazi agent like at the end of it. In this one though, Steve has been sent to like assassinate him. So there's this scene where he's in the kitchen holding like a gun to the guy's head and the guy's trying to talk him down saying like, whoever is making you do this, you don't need to do this. You're stronger than this. Mm-hmm. And you think like maybe this is going to be where you see that he's twisted Hydra's kind of programming, but not really because he tells him to shut up. He has to do this and he's very sorry. And then there's a gunshot, but it's not actually Steve who shot the guy. His friend, Helmet, Baron Zemo, showed up and saw that Steve was having his moment of doubt and shot him for him. And he tells Steve that they have to use this 1940s colander with like batteries attached to it mm-hmm. to rip the secrets out of the guy's mind and that he can't be here when everyone arrives because they can't know that he failed in his mission, that he has to be the one who shot the guy. It looks like the helmet from Back to the Future that Doc Emmett wears. Yes, very much so. So he kind of thanks Baron Zemo for being there to help him and that the program is still going to continue because they have a Hydra agent that they captured who's Armin Zola, who's going to continue the project. But Armin Zola is still loyal to Hydra. And then you realize that the person he's been talking to, trying to tell him that, it's time to tell him all the truth, that it's Baron Zemo that he has in this cage. So he's been telling him all this stuff and he's like, I know this sounds crazy and you know, you think I've maybe been mind controlled or the Cosmic Cube has done something to me and you don't actually have these memories, but I do. And I know that they're true. Which makes me wonder, did they actually alter the timeline or just Steve's perception of the timeline? That makes it a little fuzzy, right? Because if this, mm-hmm. if what he's remembering actually happened, then Baron Zemo should remember also. Yeah. But he doesn't. So he's talking to Zemo how it's weird that Baron Zemo is battling the Red Skull for control of Hydra because he's not supposed to have had anything to do with Hydra, but that doesn't make sense. But if you accept Steve's timeline, it does make sense. And they talk about how Baron Zemo has rebelled against what the world has told him he's supposed to do by making the Thunderbolts because he's not real in his current form. He's not really what he's supposed to be. So that was kind of interesting. And then you get Steve is talking about how I'm asking you to trust me that this crazy thing that I'm telling you is true, but it's time for me to show you that I trust you, that you're my brother and my best friend. So he kind of lets down the cage and there's this moment where they're kind of staring at each other and you're like, is Baron Zemo going to attack him? What's going to happen? But they end up actually like embracing each other, like a nice big bro hug at the end. They're now, they're working together. And then you've got the Red Skull talking about how that they're under attack by S.H.I.E.L.D. but they're winning because S.H.I.E.L.D. is carpet bombing the city. So everyone in the city is going to end up hating S.H.I.E.L.D. And then you have this psychic person who has discovered where Kobik is. So now they can go and start looking for her. And then there's this cool part here where the sheriff of Begalia is watching security footage that he talks about the cruiser they were in back in issue one where Cap had his Hail Hydra moment and threw Jack Flag out of the plane that they ripped off the security camera that they knew that there was one on there to record that. But what they didn't know is that in Begalia, those things get stolen so often they usually install a second backup drive. So he went to go check that out and sure enough, there was the footage of it. So now out there is footage of Steve Rogers being revealed as a Hydra agent. Like all criminals, they don't really have much vision. They're just going to use it to become rich, you know, but that will expose Steve Rogers. So then you find out in this new alternate timeline that it's Armin Zola who performed the super soldier program on Steve Rogers. So a couple interesting things happen here. You see Baron Zemo and Steve Rogers coming together to work together. You find out that his secret is out there in the criminal underworld, which is interesting that they might be the ones leading the resistance against him, potentially. And now they know where Kobik is. So they're going to start going after Kobik. So lots of things happen in this one. Those had a little bit more momentum than some of the most recent issues. So I was happy with that. Still, the flashbacks back and forth sometimes get a little like tedious for me. I understand they're necessary, but sometimes they feel very hard to get. I feel like with this issue, we're back on the main interest of Captain America. I wasn't that interested in all the S.H.I.E.L.D. politics they were doing. Yeah. I can understand 
they had to do that for like the larger Marvel plot line and they got kind of dragged us into civil, into some civil war stuff but now I feel like we're back in actual Captain America telling its story so I was glad to see that return I would give it three and a half Armin Zolas I'm gonna give it three sad rocket in a suit poor little trash panda moving on to Star Lord number three Marvel Comics making your way in the world today takes everything you got Earth Lord Part 3. Written by Chip Zdarsky. Pencils and inks by Chris Anka and colors by Matthew Wilson. Chip is getting a lot of big titles lately. Not just yes. Star Wars. He's got Spider-Man now and it'd be interesting. Besides the cheer uh, reference in the title which, you know, good job Chip. That's- Every issue has a line from that theme song. Like the next one is and they're always glad you came. It shows Peter working at the bar like we where we left off the villains bar. And he's doing good. Like they think he's doing a good job. He Since he has no superpowers, they think he weighs the tension pretty well between fights breaking out. I like they call him Bar Lord. Opens up with him knocking out Jigsaw, which I think he's a Dick Tracy villain anyways, because he's hitting on some old lady, and she's basically like, I could have handled that. And he's like, well, excuse me. Message received, Golden Girl. (laughs) There's all these villains sitting at the bar, and they're talking, and one's like talking about how he's made out of diamonds, and he's not a mutant, and they're like, oh, accident. They're talking about like a heist that they have coming up, and you're comparing us to aliens i'm not an alien aka freak accident i'm gonna rob this bank basically being dumb villain a lot of c-list villains yelling out their secret plans in a bar elderly court-ordered companion son shows up and it's like i want to talk to you you've been doing a good job have you thought any more about staying on it's like no once i get a ship i'm basically out of here kind of thing we're not going to talk about your dad that's where things get crunchy so he's walking in the alleyway going to the dumpster he has a big bag of trash and then you see daredevil's shadow <laughs> And I like where he's like, your shadow gave it away. He's like, I don't see shadows. You know, he's like, is that your tagline? <laughs> yeah, I thought that was good. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> like that line can be taken like two ways. So I'm Batman creature of the night. I don't see shadows or mm. I'm blind. Uh, yeah. So I don't realize what shadows really are. He's accusing Peter of taking the money or knowing after that, knowing who took the money. Because apparently there's not all of it, but a big chunk of money is missing from that robbery that Miss Marvel and Peter helped stop. And he's like, well, I don't have it. You think if I had the money, I'd be working here? It's like, well, 4000 is missing. And then eventually, because of Daredevil's weird powers about, you know, all his other senses are heightened, he actually believes Peter. He can tell that he's not lying. And they go out into the public and fangirls attack Daredevil and want, like, selfies with him and autographs <laughs> because he's famous. And Peter's like, hey, look, I found your weakness in broad daylight. Your fans. <laughs> yeah. Daredevil flicks him a card. Call me when you find out who has the money. And then you get the sexy man pinna panels. <laughs> And I think I actually saw an article going around online about this, about how they're finally all the fan service that you get of female superheroes right. being like all sexy and cheesecake that they're playing it up now with Peter in his little short shorts and muscles. <laughs> so it's him calling Kitty and basically trying to apologize or start a conversation and him just being very awkward and not knowing what to do or say. Leaving one of those horrible awkward phone messages. He sees another shadow. He's like, I think he thinks it's Daredevil again. He's like, just leave me alone. And then it ends up being his sister or his half-sister, Victoria. And she totally like, cracks him, craters him into a wall. And she wants, she says she wants to kill him for ruining everything Sparta, everything that he did. But then she sees that he's so pathetic and ruined that it, he wouldn't be like a valiant kill. And so she has to wait for him to pick himself up and like be better before he's worth her hunting him down and killing him. And it shows him back with Edmund, the old man. And he's telling him everything, just like about his sister and his phone call with Kitty. <laughs> he's like just chatting him up and all his problems. And he's like, these are strange problems to have, son. Yeah. 
What? And he's like, you've had some deep wounds and they affected people, but for right now is an emotional distraction. Let me get you some ice cream. <laughs> Grandpa solution. Yeah. Let's get some ice cream. Soft serve. He's like, it's a beautiful combination of oil and chemicals. Somehow it exists in this world of artisanal delicacies too, please. And he's like, let me pay for it. And that's when Peter is hinted at when he sees the big wad in Edmund's wallet. Yep. Fat stack of bills. And, and like his face, he's eating ice cream and it's like, like the big eyes. Like Peter's putting two and two together. So he takes him back to the the retirement community and they're talking about how like, you know, the people who work there don't really like him. And then he starts talking to him, like confronts him about the money and saying how like, they thought I took it. And like, he's like, it didn't hurt no one. And I'm old. Right. He gives him back almost 3,200 of it. And he's like, oh, there goes my tips from last week because Peter's going to make up the rest of the money. So it's all returned. Right. He's been working because he needs that money to pay back the fees that he owes on top of the community service. So then Peter's sitting in his little superhero hanging over the ledge, feet down with a paper bag, Daredevil like i got your message <laughs> he's like so you found the money that your friend mistakenly took with all the like quotation marks yeah. around everything he's like i believe you call it a sixth sense he's like i'm gonna need a name and peter's like uh-uh and that's not part of the deal you know the guy's like a hundred years old it's like a mid post mid 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 life crisis this is where daredevil's kind of a jerk and like a little bit too much of a stickler i understand he's a lawyer and he wants to prosecute to the fullest extent of the law he already gave peter a chance to get it and get it right you don't really need a name he's like you don't understand the law can't just return the money and everything's forgiven yeah. but he does agree not to go after the guy because he's old so eventually daredevil comes around to being a reasonable person and peter does give him the name then he's like wait did you say edmund allen i'm guessing that's like some foreshadowing that edmund allen is not who he pretended to be jumps to back to those c-list villains who are being dumb in the bar and it says elsewhere and it's the diamond guy and he is locked up tight like metal girder across bolted across his neck and down and someone telling him how dumb he was for being so chatty and spilling all his secrets at the bar and like this person has been waiting all this time for someone to do just that so that she can swoop in and do the crime before they do the crime yeah. but then he's like wait I can't feel and then it changes panels where Black Cat cut off his leg his diamond leg so now she has a huge honking diamond but he's still alive so it's very sad and scary yeah he's being tortured having parts of himself cut off because he is pure diamond I just really like Kip Zdarsky's writing I think he's very funny and natural. I think he's becoming a much better writer than he was in the past. He's a good artist. He's a good writer. This is funny. It's an easy read. When I say easy, I don't mean it's simple. I mean, it just, it flows really well. I think there's definitely certain characters that lend to his style and Peter is up there with it. Like you want him with Star-Lord, Howard the Duck, Spider-Man. Like you want him with those kind of quippy, offbeat, quippy kind of characters. I really love that when a company recognizes an artist's style fits and they can really like thrive and flourish in that. And I feel like yeah. Marvel's really doing that with Chip. They've seen where his strengths are and they're giving him a run with characters that really lend to his style. I'll give it four. I don't see shadows. I will give it three and a half. Let's get some ice cream. So we have Dead No More, the clone conspiracy number five from Marvel Comics, written by Dan Slott, pencils by Jim Chung, inks by John Dell, Jay Lyston, and Jim Chung, colors by Justin Ponzer. This is the conclusion to the clone conspiracy one where the jackal who's not really the jackal it's really ben riley is making these clones of people but the clones turn into zombies and he had that big room full of super villains that he had brought back from the dead and that are going to turn into zombies and we're like this won't end well so this is basically it not ending well broadcasting this signal throughout the world that's going to 
kill everyone and he's going to clone them and bring them back to give everyone like a, a restart. Like they'll all have the same birthday. You'll never forget your mom's birthday again. Peter is kind of watching this. Anna Maria, Doc Ock's girlfriend, has also been infected. And Peter is trying to like get to the lab. The one thing that I really liked, I mean, there's lots of superhero punching and reveals and stuff. Is I liked a lot of these where you get people's like last moments where you get to really see insights into their characters about what they consider to be important. I liked where the lizard takes his family away, takes his wife and his son away, and he actually has some of the cure that he's, I don't know if he's made it or found it, but he's like, there's only enough for the three of us, and he gives them the injections to save his family. So I thought that was nice to see that Dr. Connors is still looking out for his family that he lost, that he doesn't want to lose them again. And then you get Captain Stacy gets to have his moment where he says goodbye to Gwen Stacy, and he basically tells her that Peter's a good man and he needs your help. So they go off, swinging off to go find this lab that the jackal is at and she kind of locks him in this room like they have this moment where they're gonna tell each other all the things they wanted to tell each other and he's standing on one side and she pushes the door that like lowers it down to stop all the people that are chasing them so she is going to sacrifice herself which i like this part where she's confronting all the goblins who are the ones who killed her originally Mm -hmm. you're gonna die do you really want to die like this and she's like you mean having a chance to fight back and save the world this time you bet i like that that she is getting a chance to actually fight the people who killed her the first time. Yeah. She's still going to die, you know, but at least she's going to die on her feet and fighting. And she chose to do that to save Peter. So I thought that was pretty cool. And then I actually really like the fight scenes. When Peter breaks into the lab, he sees Doc Ock and the Jackal slash like Ben Riley are like fighting each other. And Doc Ock is pissed because he's damaged his girlfriend. He's infected her with the virus too. Ben is like telling Peter, I'm the good guy here. I'm trying to save the world. And if you could just look at it, like you're teaming up with Doc Ock, doesn't that tell you you're a bad person? And then Peter's like, well, Doc Ock has been inside my head before when he was the superior Spider-Man. I know he's not all bad. So it's kind of neat to see Doc Ock being able to tell his girlfriend in his own body, because when they were dating each other, he was trapped in Peter's body. So now he gets to actually talk to her as himself and tell her that he would, you know, die a thousand deaths to protect her. And it's, you know, all worth it. So I thought that was kind of nice to have a little bit of insight into the characters there. Peter Parker and Anna Maria, they work out like a counter frequency to the thing. So they send the frequency out. It like wipes out all the clones and turns them all like into dust. It was a kind of a nice little way to like wipe your hands of like, what's going to happen with all these clones running around? They're like, uh, nothing because they're all destroyed. And I'm hoping because in order to do that, he had to use all of his Parker technology and kind of like fry it. So I'm hoping this might be a way for them to reset Peter Parker being the rich billionaire Tony Stark type because that sucks for Peter Parker. I do yeah. not like that. I agree. So if this is what they use to wipe it away, I'm all for it. I don't know if that's actually going to be the case or if he's going to rebuild or what, but I hope that they get rid of that stupid, stupid, stupid part of his character. Mm -hmm. They actually saved a couple clones at the facilities that Peter Parker runs, but they're not going to live forever. They're going to die in a couple days anyway, but they're going to be able to go back to their families and stuff like that. So the original guy that Peter was looking for, he finds him and he's going to take him home so he can say goodbye to his wife and kind of pass away at home. Seeing all the villains always was neat and like you always knew it was never going to end well but I did like people had their moments but the Gwen Stacy being able to fight grabs the pumpkin bomb I was like yeah she finally yeah. It was on her terms I thought that was great I thought that was one of the better parts of the issue I thought that and Doc Ock were you know really good parts of this so I think I will give it 
three and a half the chance to fight back i give it three oh she has a spidey powers i understand i thought that was kind of heartbreaking <laughs> batwoman rebirth number one dc comics written by marguerite bennett and james tinian the fourth pencils and inks by steve eptic and colors by jeremy cox so this one has a little backstory showing of what's going on with throughout the years kind of introducing you to the batwoman character yeah so you get a lot more information it shows, shows her growing up and what happened to Kate, which is very interesting. So it's very helpful. I guess that's the point of Rebirth. It shows that she had a twin sister and her mom and what happened to them and how they were grabbed. And those dark panels with just the text are just, it's pretty dark and messed up. It's just like, but I think very powerful. I love it when they use this black panels really well. Yes. This is one of those examples of that. I think it's, and then how the last black panels just pulled away in the corner. Oh, so good. And then where they're carrying her out of the room with everyone like shot in the head mm-hmm. and they're like, don't look, honey. Like, stay with me. And then you see that panel of her dead sister. Yeah. It's really effective. Not a lot of words, but you know everything that happened. And so then it jumps in her age. And so then it shows her at West Point and her fighting and like getting teased. One of her first big romances. Fighting and flirting at the same time. Yeah. Someone in the military higher up noticing. And then it jumps again where you see that she was court-martialed. They accused her of doing a uniform code violation. And so they're like, you can just tell us that this was a misunderstanding. It'll never happen again. We'll forget it. She quotes to them based what she was taught a cadet shall not lie cheat or steal or, or suffer others to do so and she's like i can't and these are countermixed with her being like drunk and playful like at some like rich like yacht party and then she goes i'm sorry sir i can't i just says i'm gay and so that's how you see how she got kicked out of the military and then it goes off to like the coast of malta where she's hearing things and she wakes up and she thinks that there's someone out to get her and she runs into i'm gonna say her girlfriend at the time <laughs> that's the impression i got certainly and she's like you can't always think that there's assassins sneaking through the house in the shadows if it was i'd be the one that sent them which is kind of interesting that line she says she knows everything about the city and the people here know what she's capable of doing would never come after her so i think she's like a crime lord but then there is totally an assassin in the window watching them and then it goes back to gotham and her running into another person and her lots of her love you skip around her love renee montoya that she runs into and then it shows her age 24 her first run in with the bat he's like you know do you know where you're heading do you know what you want and more of her training i feel like this shows her going through a lot of her stages in her life like very significant key points that make her who she is yes. it takes years for you to be ready to put on the costume lots of soul searching and training before you're willing to call yourself the batwoman yeah because it has her like learning to fight and doing parkour and all that mm-hmm. but she's also reading the art of war and hiking and like so she's doing the outward stuff and the inner stuff that you need to prepare to be yeah. the bat i'm not complicated batman war took my family i lost one way to fight back i think it's very interesting like there's a panel where again it shows her jumping it shows her like the villains she's fought the people she's lost the people she's fought with who have been like maybe mentors or influences shows her having like her loves shows her kind of like rising up and then her new team play face and then it goes and jumps to the aftermath of the monster men he's saying like the venom now it's on the black market as a drug and that they need to go into action and to deal with that and she's like do you know where you're going and then it shows this big fractured thing i don't know who that villain is but the one that looks like a doll that's her dead sister oh awesome good times and so like all these people like questioning her and like the negative i think it's like the negative influences in her life that she thinks she's facing it's very kind of like a psychological thing everyone's asking her where she's going like what she's doing are you leaving 
Yep. And then it's like, we're approaching Gotham's your order, Commander Kane, and it's like, open fires. I think that's her mom. I think this was a really good rebirth issue because it introduces you to the character, tells you where they're going and where they've been. And, you know, at the end of this, I found myself actually caring about what happens to her. I enjoyed it as a rebirth issue. I thought it was very successful. It gives you the backstory. It helps you understand the character and where it's going. It's a good start. It's like a good restart. It's a good rebirth. It's, that's exa- it's exactly what it's called. And I think that's it really accomplishes that. I agree. And I really think Marguerite Bennett is, is the perfect choice to be writing this series. Oh, absolutely. Like we said, when we were reading Detective Comics and we saw Batwoman in there, we're like, they need to get Marguerite Bennett on this right away. And they did. So I think it is a perfect mix. The artist is matched to the project. Like you were talking about with like Chip Zdarsky, like figuring out what they're good at doing. Mm-hmm. You know, this is what she's good at doing. I liked it, but I don't love it. I'm going to give it three and three quarters. If there were really assassins sneaking through my house, in the shadows believe i'd be the one who sent i think i will give it four creepy little dead sisters so we have doctor strange number 17 over in marvel comics state of misery written by jason aaron art by fraser irving so this one there's a new team and i think they're doing this to give i hope they're doing this to give the artists a chance to be able to keep up that pace that they're on so this one fraser irving does the entire thing rather than the normal like 50 people that are on doctor strange so i do miss bacalo's artwork i do too but when you're going like every two weeks or so that's a really hard pace to keep up so you got to do these kind of one-off palette cleanser type issues. This one isn't bad. I don't mind the artwork. It's not bad at all. It starts out with these weird monsters getting ready to fight each other, and Doctor Strange has decided that the way to unify them is to make him the enemy of both of them, so the two tribes unite together mm-hmm. and to have a common enemy. And then he kicks the crap out of all of them and makes a peace treaty and divides the land up between them. Like, on this side of the river, one tribe will live, and on the other side, the other tribe, other side will live. And he's like, and none of you are allowed to leave the living room. Yeah. And that's when you realize this entire epic battle is taking place inside the mansion. Living room battle. Things are going kind of crazy in the mansion. They're getting attacked by things and like tentacles are coming out of the kitchen. They say like Wong is the only one who knows how to keep the house functioning and not kill them. Steven is getting notifications of all these weird activities are going on throughout the world and the magic is coming back. But as magic is coming back, all of the things that are attracted to it are coming back also. And you see Wong and Mr. Misery that Mr. Misery is trying to take over Wong's mind, but Wong is resisting him as much as he can can, but he can't resist him forever. And then he finally kind of like gives in. And this is the part that I thought was really kind of fucked up here. I guess I shouldn't skip past the bar with no name. So at the bar with no name, Man-Thing shows up. Doctor Strange is in the bar telling everyone they need to find Wong. And Man-Thing touches him to show that he's like afraid because the touch of Man-Thing will burn you if you're afraid. And then Man-Thing takes him with him to the swamp to go fight some like vampires. Some Nazi ninja vampires. Yes, Nazi ninja vampires. That's why I love that Doctor Strange come up with these wackadoo things. Doctor Strange and Man-Thing defeat the Nazi ninja vampires. And then Mr. Misery and Wong go to visit people that Doctor Strange as a mortal doctor has helped with like his brain surgery. They bring like the tumors back. So these people show up all at the hospital and in the hospital they try and do a surgery to remove the tumor again. But when they cut into the first person's skull, like they say the tumor fights back and you see an image of the operating room just drenched in blood. And there's like scratch marks all along the wall and everything. 
everything. So clearly it did not go well. So Doctor Strange is going to go in and try and operate on all of these people, but he needs assistance to do it. And he brings in Thor. I'm guessing Thor is going to be fighting the things that come out and he's going to be doing the surgery. You get a little Thor, Doctor Strange team up here. The art is definitely different than Chris Bacalo's arts, but I don't think it's bad. It's a little painterly, but it gets the job done. I'm very used to seeing Bacalo's art for this and I associate it really closely, but it's not bad. It's kind of dreamy, like hazy. Yes. It goes well with Doctor Strange, so used to Bacalo's artwork right now. Nazi ninja vampires, I love where he's like, I'll give you credit for originality and your rogues there, Manny. <laughs> yeah. When they show the lineup of all the people with the tumors, ugh, it is not pretty looking. It's- no. Distorted skulls and pulsing tumors. and yeah, ugh. It's not good. Mr. Misery is definitely living up to his name here. You're also hitting on Stevens, his pride. That was his accomplishments. That's what his work, those were the things he could show off that he did back before he was magical. It's an interesting attack on him. I think I will give it three and a half misery has happened. I like it a little bit more than you because I think there were some really funny parts and I thought it was a very interesting attack. I will give it four. I like a good witty quip as much as the next costume jerk. All right. Ride us out on the storm. All righty. We have The Wild Storm, number one. DC Comics, written by Warren Ellis. Pencils and inks by John Davis Hunt. And colors mm-hmm. by Ivan Placencia. Yes. We found out why the clean room's artwork changed because John Davis Hunt went and started working on Wildstorm. And you can tell his artwork right from the start. Yep. Some of those characters look exactly like they walked out of clean room. Which is a very, very good thing. We've been telling people to check out clean room for a long time. And I hope when people read Wildstorm, they'll really like it and they'll go back and check out clean room. This is a uh, front runner, another DC comic as my pick for the week. But I think a lot of part that I really loved about it was the artwork. Story is good. I'll get to that. But the artwork, John Davis Hunt really drew me in and made me love it so much. His art is so crisp and clean and the people look they look perfect in here. Start off with a woman with short blonde hair like white blonde hair looking in like a dirty bathroom mirror. Blood on her. She's washing blood off her hands. That's a zealot. So to those of you who have read Wildstorm stuff before, Carissa, you haven't read any Wildstorm comics, right? Correct. So things like Wildcats, Stormwatch, The Authority, Gen 13, all of those are in the Wildstorm family. So there's a lot of characters in here from those things that you may not recognize. Then she goes, Zealot to Division, an interview went badly, sent in a cleanup team because there is a dead guy here in a toilet. Just because I watched the Magician show when it pans to the guy with the eight fingers, I was like, hey, that reminds me of the Beast. So she's cleaning up and she leaves and she's going out up the stairs out of this like sub basement and she's like, you know, Zealot out and she runs into the cleanup team and like, we're in a field, call me by my name and custodian bravo and that's when we see the girl who I think remind me of Clean Room. Doesn't she look like the main character? She does look like the main character from Clean Room. That's Voodoo. I mean, I know who all these characters are, so I'm like, oh my god, that's Voodoo! You know, like, I have those moments when I see Mm. these things, and you're just like, that's an interesting looking person. But I think that that kind of speaks, though, to the power of this issue, that I can enjoy it very, very much, having read Wildstorm, and you can almost make it your pick of the week, having never read any Wildstorm. Correct. It works on both levels. So, they're looking at advertising, like, in a Times Square-like thing, but it's not really Times Square, it's, like, somewhere nearby. Different things about Halo, and then, you know, but there's a UFO abduction right over here, and the mythic resonance of the alien ground, and, like, down this alley, this guy turned into a bat, and she's like, cool, I totally paid to go on a New York UFO 
hobo tour. I thought that was funny. <laughs> UFO bat hobo tour. Angela Spicer from one of his researchers. The engineer. Comes yeah, she's an engineer. Well, she's the character, the engineer. Okay. So this is kind of almost like her origin story that's taking place here. She comes up and is kind of frantic and talking strange and very nervous. And she has groundbreaking research and evidence, but she needs more resources to get everything done. And they're kind of brushing her off thinking, well, wow, she's crazy. You know, you're interrupting me on my time off. This is unprofessional kind of thing. She's bleeding and they're like, are you hurt? And she's like, ah, runs off like, never mind, leave me alone. I don't want your charity. Kind of forget. She's, yeah. she's asking kind of crazy pants. She's having a, a hard time. Yeah. And you find out why later, but yeah. I won't steal your thunder. As she's leaving the coffee house is when you also see Zealot again leaving. She's like, oh, it takes all sorts. So she's walking along around by the Halo building and someone's like looking up and she's like, almost runs into them. And she's like, oh, sorry, what's going on? I think I saw a flash of light. And then way high up, you see a window break and a man fall and there's a body falling out of this building. Is anybody gonna like gonna help? And all she sees is people with like cameras up videotaping. No one helping, no one calling for help. Right. And that's when she says, main engine start and then pain and anger and pain. And she's tearing herself apart and turning into, you know, robot. I like that whole transformation sequence. And she launches up and she saves the dude, which is, you know, is he like a CEO? Jacob Martin. He's the CEO of Halo. And you find out more about him as the issue goes on. So she puts him back into another window and sets him down. And she's bleeding through there. And he's like, can I help you? She's like, I don't think anyone can. And she takes off. So he makes a phone call saying that Michael Cray from IO just tried to kill him. And there's something new in the world and wake up the cat. Wildcat. Woohoo. And then you see lots of news going on, like them trying to identify her and what's happening. And a lot of the outward facing story that they tell to the media about what's happening and then after that you see a lot of like the what's happening on the back end from people the person who he said that tried to kill him they have him to, he's detained with some guards and he's being interviewed about like what's going on and he says how basically how he failed like why did you plan this why did you just go and shoot him what were you thinking that was a horrible plan well i had it all written up there was some sort of proximity bomb well they're gonna use polonium which is a radioactive substance you poison people with it's yeah. the kgb does that to people all the time. You hear his side of the story, which is interesting, because later on we're going to hear the other guy's side of the story, which is slightly different, because he has what he knows about himself. Which is funny, because then it shows him drinking, and the person's like, oh, this tastes weird. He's like, oh, I'm worried about being radioactive poisoning, so I'm building up a tolerance. So kind of skipped over their confrontation. He goes in to kill the guy, and he like, pulls out this little, like, mini like cannon thing, like, pops out of his arm. So he's clearly not a normal human, and they touch each other, and because they're both aliens, there's, like, this explosion that happens. It throws him through the window and throws the other guy through the wall. As far as going through the window, that was the least of my surprises all day. This metal lady comes and flies up, which leads me to the question, where were you? And I was falling to my death, Adriana. She's like, oh, I was wondering when you were going to ask me that. Get kind of a panel where they're looking at the security footage and they figure out that the engineer, I mean, they don't call her the engineer, but that, that's who that character is. Mm-hmm. That it's Angela and that she works for them. He's like, hey, that's that chick that was bothering me today at my coffee shop. I thought it was a good story and it was interesting. You know, I felt like I want to know what was going on. Like I said, I've never never read any of those before and the artwork is amazing yeah i mean i have read most of those wildstorm issues like i have some of the few action figures i own are from the authority which is a wildstorm series i mean i recognize these characters and i have a you know fondness for them so when i see them i get excited on that level but i do think it's interesting though that you haven't read wildstorm and you really liked it too that to me tells me this is a success and not just to like fanboys of the you know series i gave it for wake up the cat oh, that's what I was going to use. <laughs> 
I will give it four and a half voodoos. So those were the books we read this week. Check out our other podcast, Broke Gaming and Cut the Cord, as well as other nerd shenanigans. Go check out fourcolornerds.com or our Facebook page. You can follow us on Twitter or on Instagram. You can also find the podcast for your listening pleasure on iTunes, Google Play Music, on Stitcher, and on SoundCloud, and on Podcast Addict. Be sure to come back next week for another episode. Until then, keep reading, nerds.